This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to episode 66 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking awesomely autumnal, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. And over in Cambridgeshire, with a smile that would light the world up, we have Thordis <laughs> Maria Sophia Friedrichsen. I'm in a jumper. I've got a blanket. I don't know why. It's got. It's got I'm a in a chili. jumper too. <laughs> and our guest today looks amazingly well wrapped up. He looks like a medieval night I feel. He has got a, a bit of a regal air. We have really? long been looking forward to the chat we're going to have today with Tim Fuller of the fabulous Norfolk-based nursery Plantsman's Preference which we have both frequented. I know Alan buys tons of plants from you Tim. Before we get stuck into planty chat do you have any middle names to share? I do. It's a little bit on the boring side I'm afraid. It's Simon. Any reason? Um, my parents always told me it's because they were worried I wouldn't like Timothy, so they gave me an ordinary middle name that I could use instead. You just stuck with Tim? Yeah, oh, of course, the only person who's called me Timothy was my primary school head teacher, <laughs> and the shopkeeper before last in the village here, <laughs> who delighted as I walked in the door said, Timothy! <laughs> you might remember from a a 1980s, 1990s sitcom on BBC. <laughs> <laughs> well, Timothy Fuller, it is a joy to have you along to chat plants. Um, when, when we come to the Flomo section later on, where it's, you know, the plants that we uh, have a fear of missing out about, your Instagram feed is just a constant source of that for me. Oh, I, I was trying to just pick out one or two things and it was very, very difficult. Before we kind of yeah, get to your show and tell and stuff, how long have you been gardening? I get the feeling this is kind of from infancy. Um, nearly, yes. Um, first gardening memories I've got, I would have been maybe five, um, taking cuttings of things like fuchsias. And a little after that, I got given my own bit of the garden, which, of course, as is the way with things like that, was right at the bottom of the garden, yeah. underneath half a dozen giant sycamore trees. So it was dark, it got covered in masses of sycamore leaves, and I, of course, wanted a rockery. So I was trying <laughs> to grow all these rock garden plants underneath giant sycamore trees. And it didn't work that well, but it did teach me about some plants just being survivors. Then I started selling plants actually aged about 10, when I sold some plants to my teacher at primary school and started the nursery when I was 17. Um, so, yeah, it's been non-stop, really. And obviously, you know, as you get into gardening, you get into more and more unusual plants, but you definitely have been plants with preference, the, the clues in the name, but you have a real feel for just pushing the boundaries, trying new things, finding stuff that's that bit more interesting and unusual. Yeah, one of the sort of initial reasons for calling it that and setting up the nursery, I suppose, was wanting to make plants that people weren't aware of available to everybody not just the the plant geeks and the the plantsmen as 
sort of traditional old term, but so anybody who just had an ordinary garden could grow something different, something rare. No point having a mega rare plant that dies six weeks after you plant it, but if it was rare and interesting and worth having in the garden, that was kind of the premise to start with. And of course, we grow a wider range of sort of more ordinary plants as well, because they're the bread and butter that help pay for the experimenting. Um, not everything works first time. <laughs> well, a lot of it does. And Alan, I know that at East Ruston, there are plenty of plants that you've got from Tim. Yeah, I just had some new additions, actually, last Wednesday when Tim and Sally came over. Um, there was a box that he, he just actually sent me an email because he was coming over uh, to look at the spirea trials that we're doing here in conjunction with the RHS, uh, the last final look at those, two of which he, he's grown for years, I think, or some years anyway. And uh, he just sent me an email saying, is there anything I can bring you? And I sort of thought, oh, he's a canny fella. I thought he's getting his petrol money. <laughs> 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 and why not? Um, anyway, so I sent the list um, in and then the, the box duly arrived with Tim and Sally and I went to look. I went to look at the box to collect it from the shed, and there was no invoice in it. You see, so I said, "Well, Tim, there's no invoice in it." And he said, "Well, no. I was wondering if we might do some form of exchange." You see, um, so he took quite a bit of propagate material, and I'm more than happy to do this if I know that it's somebody trustworthy and somebody who is actually going to make an effort to propagate properly, because um, you know it keeps the plants in circulation. And I, like Tim, um, have this kind of thing. It's a feeling that you just want, if you find a plant that's unused, you just want it out there for other people to enjoy. Because, you know, if it's worth growing, it's worth keeping. And if it proves itself, as he says, not everything's a success, but we've had some quite interesting salvias, I think, the other day, didn't we, Tim? Yeah, and I'm, I'm constantly picking up new salvias and things like that. Mm -hmm. And... I'm, I will admit to always feeling nervous if I know I'm the only person in the country with a certain plant. It's <laughs> happened with a few things that I've got, um, either because they've come from somebody who's not here anymore or because I've bought them in from overseas, which of course is something that's not so easy to do at the moment. Um, and yeah, if I'm sort of thinking if I'm the only person with this plant, I really ought to get at least a few propagated and distribute them to somebody else. Yeah. And if I do kill it, I might be able to get it back again. <laughs> well, uh, that's that old gardening adage, isn't it? The best way to keep a plant is give it away. <laughs> so, Tim, were you just always very green-fingered? Obviously, it helps when you start really young. But do you have a really good brain for keeping hold of propagation techniques? What works? Do you keep notes? Obviously, you're very good at it. Yeah, it's a bit more instinctive with me, I would say. Um, I mean, I never went to college or anything, so I've not been taught formally how to propagate plants. And people like, I know you've had Joe Sharman on the podcast a couple of times before, and he's got this encyclopedic brain for propagating stuff and knowing the recipe, if you like, for each plant. I just kind of get on and do it and don't think so much about it. Um, most of the time it works well enough sometimes it doesn't work very well but yeah, we usually manage to keep things going but I've always had this um, sort of rule that I work by that I will try and grow a plant three times and if I lose it three times then it's just not meant to be and I give up on it and try something different. Um, I quite like uh, that just move on put it behind you. Yeah well I work on the basis that the first time 
I might have done something silly with it. The second time it might have been a rubbish plant from wherever I got it from. And the third time just means it's not going to happen. <laughs> There's something that I can't give it, so forget it. Um, <laughs> so many plants out there, you can always try something else. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see what plants you brought along to talk about today because there's this very tempting cameo at the side of the screen from some grasses. So I can see some foliage and berries and things. So what have you brought for show and tell, Tim? Well, um, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> I've kind of filled the office. I suppose because one of the things that the nursery is best known for are ornamental grasses, I thought I'd better start there. And I happen to have a national collection of mullinias. Um, so I've got some of those here. They're probably a bit big. Yeah, you can't see me past them. Um, so mullinias are purple moor grasses, um, British, European natives. And there's two distinct types. There's only one species, but it's mullinia carolia subspecies arundinacea which these are um, they're sort of five to nine feet tall and subspecies carolia are mostly sort of under four feet tall um, so that's one species it's divided quite nicely into size um, and they're clump forming reasonably well behaved though some people find they self-seed a bit and there's some new forms and some old favorites out there um, sure if I can separate these. This is transparent, which is quite widely grown. A lot of garden designers use it because it has got a very transparent flower head. So although it's six or seven feet tall, you can see straight through it. Throw that one out of the way. <laughs> then this is a heavier flowered one, new, newish one from the Netherlands called Tears of Joy. And that one arches quite nicely, but it's still got a good upright habit to it. And that again is about six feet tall. This is a newish French one. And this is where I mangle the French. This is Les Pontes de Sur, which is a very arching one, but it also has a really distinctive reddy pink tint to the stems. Whereas all the what others- that translate as? I believe it's a bridge over the river Sur. Uh -huh. um, I got this feeling it's designed by some very famous architect and it's a a particularly wide low span over a, a big river and yeah this one does arch almost double in the garden so it does need a big space but that stem color makes it very popular with a lot of people oh. it's the only one really with this warm orangey um sort of pinky red color to it yeah that's um, beautiful they're forms of tall ones and off camera down here somewhere I've got one of the shorter ones, and this is more flammer. So if, and sometimes people are worried that tall grasses are just too much for a small garden. This one's only going to be about two and a half to three feet high. And it's a sort of warm, bronzy, orangey colour on the stems. You pull them together, sometimes you can see it, see the colour better. Um, and that's a nice, neat clump former. I think these shorter forms are less likely to seed around as well. So if people are worried about self-seeding, it's perhaps better to go for the short ones. But they're really good, tough, hardy plants, um, very easy. And garden designers and the, the Dutch designer, Pete Aldolf, has used thousands of them in his gardens. So yeah. if you pop up to Pensthorpe or somewhere like that in Norfolk, you'll see quite a lot of millennias there. 
Can I ask a really kind of amateur question about buying grasses? Um, so quite, I mean, that was a lovely big pot, but if I buy them, they're, they're often very small. And I'm yeah. kind of worried, I put them in the garden and I worry they're just going to get completely crowded out. Would it be wise to sort of grow them on and let them bulk up before you put them in or are they going to fight their way? It's probably best to get them in the ground as soon as possible. Um, I mean, what I had there was actually two of our sale plant pots put together. So you've got a little bit more bulk to it. Um, some people even go to the, the extreme of buying three of something yeah. and putting them together in one hole. Um, but no, if you can keep other things away from them for a year or two, then they'll get away. They've got a very deep root of the millennials, so they can tap into moisture quite a long way down. And they'll often outcompete their neighbours in a dry summer, even though they come from wet ground in the wild. Um, they're, they're surprisingly tough in dry places as long as you've got them established for a year or two first. So a bit of extra water and they grow quite happily. That's one of the strange things about plants, isn't it, Tim? Because quite often you'll come across, shall we say, um, uh, I'm going to call it a Michaelmas daisy for fear of getting muddled up with all the new names they've got. Yeah. Um, or even ferns that will grow in a dry place. But you've got to get them established first. That's that it. is the trick, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I, I always say first year, give it plenty of water, but irregularly. So give mm. it a real soak, then let it dry out, then give it a real soak again. And then year two onwards, plants just have to get on with it on their own. Yeah. Uh, I, I never carry on watering something after its first year. I uh, expect it to get on with it. Yeah. Um, so if, if it doesn't, if it disappears on me and pegs it three times, then that's that. I'll try something different. Yeah. I think that's a good maxim to have, in actual fact. I think, you know, one year's watering, now get on with it. Exactly. <laughs> Eat and rough and tell them nothing, I know. <laughs> if you plant it at this time of year as well, when, you know, it's even less watering because hopefully the weather will do, deal with it over the winter for you. And, I probably wouldn't give anything that was planted in the autumn water the following summer. It would just have to get on with it on its own that way. That is a maxim that I have in the garden here that not to do spring planting, always to plant in the autumn. But somehow the autumn's never seemed long enough. I mean, no. you know. That... <laughs> and you can see where the gaps are better in the spring sometimes as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. 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 yeah, that is yeah. a tricky thing. Right, what's next, Tim? Um, well, I suppose one of the other important groups of grasses, the panicums, the North American prairie grass. Um, so again, I've brought three of this one. This is a panicum virgatum Cheyenne sky. Uh, it's a fairly recent introduction. And it's, I think, the best red purple colored panicum out there. And it's actually a good doer as well. Some of the really good red purple colored ones are poor doers and not worth the effort. But I've had Cheyenne sky about five years now, and it's it certainly a good grower as well as good colour. It's quite short, only a couple of feet high. A lot of the panicums will get taller than that. And these are true prairie grasses. So they, they come from the US and Canada. Um, the clump forming again. And in 25 years or more growing panicums, I have never once had a self-sown seedling from them. Mm. So if you're worried about them seeding, I think you can pretty much forget that with panicums. They're, they're really good. Um, they are quite variable. There's about 40 different forms of panicum virgatum now. Um, this one has a sort of greyish green leaf during the summer. And then by about the beginning of August, it's picking up this ready purple tint. And you can see here we are 
well, it's the first of November today, and they're about 50% red, I would say. Um, so right at the end of the season, but they'll stand up quite nicely. And to the other extreme, the panicums. Can I just ask a question? Yeah. Well, well, while we're dealing with panicums, now do would you cut those back to the ground in spring? Yeah, late February, early March for the deciduous grasses. Um, but this is a panicum as well. So they're not all red and purple. No, they're not. This is a newer one from Austria called Diwali. And it's this brilliant, glowing, golden yellow. But this is really standing out on the nursery at the moment. And it's you sort of look across our sales area and you just see this, this tower of golden yellow. It's about three and a half feet tall, um, really upright with these sprays of very open flower heads on the top. They look like they'd catch the autumn light really beautifully. Yeah. Late afternoon sun when it's just heading down to the horizon. That's when you want these. So, yeah, they're not all red. There's there's some really good yellow ones out there as well. I thought panicum's always one of the, the good ones for people to start with because they're, they're well behaved. They're quite compact. They're not going to frighten people. <laughs> <laughs> but people do get worried about some of the bigger grasses. Um, yeah. But I suppose talking of bigger grasses, miscanthus ought to come in here, which is fairly common, fairly popular. But I'm not going to show the eight foot tall, big flowery ones because <laughs> they just don't fit in the office. So instead, I've brought another one that's grown for its autumn colour. Um, this is one which I'd been after for years and finally got. I was actually given this by the garden designer in this country um, and then bought some more stock from the continent. This is one called Flamenmere. And in common with the other well-coloured um, miscanthus, as an awkward way to say it, isn't it? Um, some of the miscanthus have better autumn foliage colour than others, let's put it that way. Um, Flamenmere is not the most vigorous or biggest plant out there, but it does grow. Um, doesn't flower very well. You can perhaps just see there's one little wisp of flower on the top of this one, but it's really just grown for this amazing autumn colour. Um, it's only a couple of feet high, usually with us in pots. It'll get a little taller than that in the ground, given a good soil, but tightly clump forming. And it's quite unlike the sort of traditional, typical miscanthus that people have grown for the flowers, um, things like cascada and flamingo that you might find in a garden centre. Flamingos, yeah, different kettle of fish entirely. Um, Grasses but, do divide people, don't they? I mean, I feel like Alan and I have spent years talking about grasses and debating them and sort of their merits and otherwise. I mean, you do have lots at East Ruston Old Vicarage. I don't know if you're necessarily all grasses number one fan, Alan. Oh, I mean, they, they have to, they have to, they have to speak to me. They have to sort of say something to me. In actual fact, um, and what, what, I mean, something like you see. Um, Cortaderia patagonia, which Tim brought me the other day, is something I, I mean, if you don't know what Cortaderia is, it's pampas grass. Um, and we all know the connotation of people who plant pampas grass in their front gardens, don't we? Anyway. If you don't, Google it. It will be really eye-opening. <laughs> the thing about Patagonia is that it's a fairly dwarf one and it flowers much, much earlier. Yeah, I'm Patagonia is one that I've grown for the better part of 20 years, I suppose. And it stood out in the RHS trial of Cortaderia down at Wisley 10 or 12 years ago. Um, it's a very, very good bluey grey leaf to it, rather than the sort of slightly greyish green that you normally get. 
it's a compact clump fairly reliably the leaves aren't going to get more than about five or six feet tall and then the flowers are a couple of feet above that at most but yeah as you say it flowers july or so um, and it's still looking good usually all the way through the autumn and winter it's being shorter and stockier it doesn't get battered about by the gales at this time of year like you're sort of and something like Sunningdale Silver is a stunning traditional pampas grass, but it's 10, 12 feet high. And more often than not, it's just coming into flower in October and you get a gale that flattens the thing and you've, you've had a day or two of enjoying it before it's just turned into a mess. <laughs> and so Patagonia, um, name tells you where it came from. It was, as far as I know, it's a well-collected plant. And yeah, it's probably the best pampas, um, Cortadaria pampas grass for the garden, I should think, for most people. And it's certainly the first one that I would put in my own garden. Um, we have a near identical one called Icalma. They are, again, it's a wild collection, but virtually the same as Patagonia. Um, either of them would be very good. Mm. Yeah, it's a, a good plant year round. Another one of the big groups of grasses that everybody loves, a bit further away, um, the Penicetums. Uh, now, Penicetum is a funny group of grasses because it includes tropical plants and incredibly hardy plants from the Arctic Circle and everything in between. And I think probably Penicetum orientale in its hybrids is a good medium for people to start with. Uh, this is a really lovely one called Shogun. It's not terribly common, but I think it's the, the nicest sort of middle ground one that gives you a lovely pinky red tint to the flower when they first emerge. I don't know if you're seeing any of that on, on the camera there, but um, it's a, a, a good one to have out in the afternoon sun again. And it's about two and a half to three feet tall, really well behaved. And I always say, given good drainage and a good sunny spot, this should survive almost every winter in this country without a problem. Um, it's probably hardy to about minus 10, I suppose, but it will take colder than that if it's got really sharp drainage. Um, so if you're gardening somewhere colder than, than this, then it would need winter protection or to go in for the winter. But certainly I'm up at East Ruston, I'm sure you grow Penicetum orientale in the ground without any problem. I've got Alipecuroides is, is absolutely fine. Um, yeah, Alipecuroides is much hardier. Uh, but I, I always hesitate to recommend it because most forms flower so late, you don't get any benefit from them. Well, I, I don't know what it is, but outside my potting shed, there's one that's in full flower now, and it's been in flower for about, I suppose, five or six weeks, maybe. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's it's it has sort of slightly violet tinted flowers when it first produces them, and they gradually fade. Um, but I think I don't know which one it is. It was a present from somebody, and I just. Uh, stuck it in and I keep meaning to dig it up and divide it. Well, I, I shall do it next year. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the Pensit Morientales will start around the end of June, early July, and right. they're carrying, producing fresh flowers right up till the first frost. Right. Uh, so, and yeah, as you say, Alipecuroides sort of late September, October flowering normally. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I always rate the, the Orientales and their hybrids as giving a longer season. Um, they're not as hardy as Alipecuroides, but they're still really good doers. There's quite a few forms about now as well. Um, I know what you mean about the tropical one, shall we say, which we're yeah. getting over here with the bright pink plumes and the red foliage. And of course, they yeah. often 
You often see them in garden centres with, shall we say, sparse knowledge as to their hardiness. Yes, I've, I've seen these lovely glossy full colour labels in them that have four languages on the back that say hardy yeah. perennial grass. Yeah. No, it's not hardy. It will, it will maybe take one degree of frost, but that's the limit. Mm. Yeah, that, that red leafed one, it's all over the place. People are always asking for it, but. I managed to keep it alive once in my bathroom windowsill. But <laughs> I can't keep it alive anywhere else. Something, yeah, something in common with you, you this because your bathroom windowsill is crammed full of flowers. <laughs> we were before we all connect, or before you joined us, Tim, Alan, and I were having a discussion about all the plants that are currently taking up my bathroom windowsill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no room for any grasses on there. I tell you that much. <laughs> There, there aren't any in my bathroom anymore, but you, you still can't move for plants in there. So. <laughs> uh, um, you've got Shogun there with the pinky tinted, slightly drooping ones. There's fairy tales that's a bit more upright and less pink. And then tall tales, name suggests a lot taller, bigger, fluffier, very pink flowers when they first emerge. So there's quite a bit of variety with Penicet Mori and Tailey. This um, is the least plant person thing to say, but I just love a grass that you want to stroke. Um, um, <laughs> a bit like, um, is it Miscanthus nepalensis? Yeah. Those beautiful, yeah. utterly strokeable kind of golden uh, tassels and they're penicetans, you just want to cuddle them. Yeah, you'd be amazed how many customers on nursery sort of do this stroking through them and suddenly realise they've got a handful of seed. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> They, they will self-seed occasionally, but not very much. So they produce seed, but it's not usually a problem in this climate. Tim, that last remark of yours could be Tim's top tip. <laughs> Everybody likes stroking a lot of the grasses, but I'm always a little bit wary with some of them because you do have some sharp edges and some spiky flowers amongst them. So I, I don't encourage people sort of manhandling all of them, oh, shall we say. You don't want one that bites. Fights back. <laughs> uh, there's one or two that fight. I mean, the Cortadaria Patagonia we just mentioned, you know, it's just like any other pampas grass. The leaves do have that sharp sawtooth like silica edge on them. Mm. So, yeah, do be careful how you handle some of the grasses. Um, there's lots of lovely cuddly ones, but yeah, always a little wary about some of the others. It's funny how beauty, a beautiful plant, can so often hide its evil characteristics. Um, Alan and I, before we got recording, were talking about my bathroom windowsill, which has got a Lantana Camara baby on it because I grew it quite late from seed and I just can't let it succumb to the frosts. And I never realised how evil they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've only ever noticed sort of the lovely flowers, the lovely foliage. I've never looked at the stems because I've not grown one before. They're yeah, nasty. You know, Christopher Lloyd, in one of his books, he did a lovely chapter about prickles and sharp edges and things. And I can remember him writing about the rose called Zephyrin Druin. I don't know whether anybody still grows it very much today, but it was also known as the thornless rose. But as he warned you, she still has a few thorns up her skirts to catch you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can guarantee if you look at picking a rose and you think, no, there's no thorns there. As soon as you grab hold of it, one gets you from behind a leaflet somewhere, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, every time. Yeah. <laughs> right, what's uh, next, Tim? Well, we've got a couple of other rarer grasses. Um, this is another North American prairie grass. Um, it's a bit of an oddity, perhaps not the most ornamental, but it does perhaps sort of 
um, sum up that I'll try anything. And this is something I've had for a long while. I grew it from seed from North America. And um, this is Tripsicum dactyloides. Um, it's kind of related, as you can sort of see in the flower, to maize or sweet corn. But it's got this lovely autumn foliage colour on it again. Um, and it's quite a big plant. It'll get to sort of six feet or so tall, clump forming. I've never had it self-seed either. Um, if you want to do that sort of prairie garden, um, then yeah, Tripsicum dactyloides. It's got these interesting flowers on it all summer long and it's, it's still producing fresh flower now. They're, they're sort of purpley red to start with before going to a, a bleached greeny bark. Um, yeah, lovely. Totally hardy. It just comes straight through every winter and cut it hard back at the end of winter and it will be pushing fresh growth up again in the spring. Um, lovely fresh green during the summer, but then we've got sort of pink, purple, orange and red autumn colour on it there at the moment. That's um, so a little bit different. I'm coveting all of these grasses um, from all of our sort of chat around their hardiness how, how would my rather claggy clay treat these on clay i would say millennias panicums this tripsicum probably absolutely fine the penicetums a bit more of an issue um because the drainage that they need to do well um miscanthus often do well on clay but i have seen them struggle if it's been really compacted um so a clay soil that's quite good, they'll be fine. But if you're sort of trying to get them to grow on, particularly a, a, a customer who had a new build house on clay and their garden had obviously been trampled by the JCBs and whatnot, and they really struggled to get miscanthus to grow because the soil was just so solid. Um, so yeah, they'll, they'll cope with heavy soil, but not really stodgy, compacted wet soil. Yeah, we um, do love our new build uh, gardens. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's one thing that the last 18 months has, has done. We've had a lot of new customers coming who've never gardened before. A lot of them seem to be in new builds and they've got this sort of quite small, surrounded by fences, overlooked by the neighbours type garden. And it's solid topsoil on the top for two inches, maybe, then compacted clay and builder's rubble. Yeah, rubble. All kinds of things you find in these gardens. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think the last grass for today, um, one that's been poking me in the ear since we started. Um, it's another North American one by chance. And this is Elymas canadensis. And this is a lovely bluey grey leafed and flowered version called Icy Blue. And these bottle brush like plumes are very enormous. They're it's a full length of my hand and at least half the width of my, my hand wide. And there, yeah, there's lovely powdery gray blue. The leaves all summer are, are really pretty. They're not the, the most pale gray grass leaf out there, but they're attractive sort of glaucous blue anyway. Clump forming, um, this is a relatively short lived grass. A lot of the elymas tend to do well for sort of three years or so, and then they just run out of steam. Um, but you can grow this from seed fairly easily and it will flower in its first year from seed as well. Um, wow, that is dreamy. Yeah. It's it is. I, I think the look of that is absolutely wonderful. But uh, the word elemus will strike fear into the hearts of several gardeners, I fear, because there's a couple of blue ones that are, I mean, Magellanicus is one. I can't remember the name of the other one, but they, 
they do tend to run around a bit. Yeah, there's there's been a bit of confusion over the identities of some of them, which hasn't helped. And I would say under the correct names, Elimus are all fine. The rampant beast was moved into Lamus. And that's that's Lamus. Oh yes, L E Y M U S. Yeah. And that's that's used for stabilizing sand dunes. So it gives you a clue as to what it does. Yeah. The Elimus. And some of them are not so easy. There's, there's some really powdery blue-leafed ones from New Zealand, and they are a struggle to grow here. Um, I have grown them. They peter out and disappear. But the North American species, the, the prairie plants, they're, I say, three years or so is about their limit, but easy from seed. They flower well, and a lot of them have nice autumn foliage colour as well. Um, but Canadensis is a pretty good one to start with, I would say. They will all self-seed if you've got bare soil or gravel, but I wouldn't expect them to be a problem. And they've got quite distinctive clumps of leaves from seedlings. So if you do get seedlings popping up, you can easily tell what they are and, and hoik them out. I love a self-seeder, so that just made me want it even more. Yes. <laughs> That's one of the nice things if people don't get the chance to go to your nursery, because, you know, hello, shout out to the viewers in North America or to Australia, um, India, um, various pockets of talking dirty viewers and listeners. Um, one of the things I love about your nursery, Tim, is how you do have things self-seeded around the beds, as a lot of nurseries will. And um, sometimes they are the plants that everyone wants, but they're in the ground. <laughs> Yes, yeah, that's usually the case. And I think think there was something you were particularly keen on last time you, you came over. And it's, um, yeah, it's a, a one-off seedling <laughs> in the gravel, I'm afraid. But yeah. there's always something to be said for letting plants self-seed because that's how you find new plants very often. You know, a different colour of something or a form with better autumn foliage or something like that. So, yeah, if the nursery is too tidy, you never find anything new. Tim, if the nursery is too tidy, I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> it does tend to suggest that everything might have been bought in from somewhere yes, else it does. <laughs> right um where should we go next then um asters yeah um or whatever I've they're been... called oh yes that that's one thing where i'm just about to spill half of a vase full of them across the office that won't do the computer any good will it um i'm still using aster as the common name and um we're, we're using the, the new scientific names on the labels. And yeah, if people want to try and say Symphiotrichum, they're welcome. Um, but this is a typical Michaelmas daisy, but crossed with another species. Um, so this is Symphiotrichum, as we have to call it now, Amethystinum Freiburg. It's like the New England Michaelmas daisies, as to Novi Anglais as it used to be but it's got a much smaller flower. It comes along about six weeks later and cameras are awful for picking up the true color of this one, but it's this really beautiful pale sky to azure blue. Um, cameras always seem to make it look pink in my experience, but it is just coming to full flower in the last week or so, and it will carry on until we get a proper frost later this month or next month. Oh. Um, Habit and everything is just the same as the New England Michaelmas daisies. So it's about sort of four to five feet tall, really good at holding itself upright. And the key criteria for me with any aster, it mustn't get mildew. I can't be doing with them that get mildew. And 
this one you might get the odd spot on the bottom leaves but it never works its way up the plant and disfigures the whole clump um, so if you want late october november december flowers um, that's quite that's quite an unusual color for an aster isn't it i mean because to me it looks on my screen it's looking almost pale icy blue yeah it's it's perhaps from what i can see in the, the corner there it's not quite that pale really um but it's a, a sort of yeah light azure to pale sky blue um, it's a good one yeah. yeah it's it's lovely and in, i don't know if you can see it flowers well down the plant as well yeah. it's not just a, yeah. a, a sort of corium at the top the whole spike is covered with with lots of side shoots so really good doer um well behaved and because for gardeners who want to i mean asters pick and last in water in the house very very well don't they tim yep they do the only thing to bear in mind is a lot of the asters close up at night <laughs> and they do that in a vase in the house just as well as they do out in the garden. <laughs> so I've, I've been caught out going out to give talks to garden clubs in the evenings in the past. And you pick a bucket full of asters. And of course, you turn up at the village hall at seven o'clock at night and they're all closed up. <laughs> People can see the colour, but that's it. Um, this one doesn't do it too bad. But um, yeah, you, you just have to remember that they're fine in the daylight, but they're they just close up for the night <laughs> but it's a stunning thing in the garden anyway that one so that's that's aster freiburg you like that there was an aster that you put a photo up of with rubbeckia henryilers and i don't know which one it was but that was a one sure, wonderful combination whatever it was that was little carlo I yes think. it was yeah. little carlo oh that's a cracking plant it's been around for quite a while now but it's still hard to beat for sort of late august september flower yeah. um it was just such yeah. a lovely combination with that lovely thin petaled rudbeckia yes yeah completely accidental that one because <laughs> it was um was growing in pots in the stock bed on the nursery so um, right now this one i'm going to struggle to get into the shot but that is a single stem of a new aster which we've just been growing for a couple of years again it's very late flowering it's just been out for a couple of weeks now and judging by how well it's holding in this weather i should think it's probably got um, another two or three weeks to go and this is a form of aster turbinellus or symphiotrichum turbinellum um, called elfin i thought to start with it it was elfin as in dwarf but then I, I've just checked the name and it's actually Elfin, the end. Ah. Um, the flowers right at the end of the season. But and you see it's got masses of flowers just on one stem. Um, it's about three feet or so tall, so it's not as tall as Freiburg, but it's a lovely cascading plant in the garden. Um, and it's a little bit more along the lilac-y side. It's not quite as blue as Freiburg, but for such a late show, Mm. really really good value in the garden that one that um, is just gorgeous it's like yeah. just snowflakes fluttering about on the screen or something <laughs> yeah so it's yeah really nice one um as far as i know nobody else in this country has got that one yet um i bought it in from austria two or three years ago so hopefully be propagating it in the spring it's, yeah, don't it's kill it got <laughs> no, we, we've got a few plants now, but just not enough to start selling it. But it really, really has shown how good it is this year. Yeah. Wow, that's stunning. Then 
Last Aster, another new one, another big single head here. Um, you, I don't know if you, you probably know, I'm sure, Alan, you've got um, Aster Latriflorus Horizontalis at East yeah. Preston. Yeah, we but, used to make hedges of it. Yeah, so this is a hybrid between that and Aster Levy. And um, this has got a bit of a mouthful of a name, I'm afraid. It's a, a German name. It's Sperrea Herbstwogger. But yes, it's a bit of a mouthful. You need a long label to get Symphiatricum Sperrea <laughs> Herbstwogger on them. Um, but lovely dark stems, nearly black stem, purple flushed foliage. And it's got these small, almost white flowers. They're just flushed pink. And like all the asters, as they're pollinated, the center goes from yellow to this sort of rich pinky color. Um, I'm going to ask a question, if I may. I've yeah. got an, uh, an old fashioned vase shaped um, frame made out of iron. And yeah. it was designed so that you planted a shrub rose, which flops everywhere in it. And, and it comes up through the top. And I've been thinking what well, I can grow through that. Now, one of the things I want to try is um, Salvia atrocyania, because that flops quite a bit and it's very tall. And I'd yeah. like it to be accompanied by a very, very tall aster. What yeah. would you suggest? Have I put you on the spot? Well, her little bit. I said that this one's probably not tall enough for it, but I need um, something about seven or eight feet. Oh gosh, yeah. You're probably looking at the Lavies to do that. So yeah. um and something like Vast Arrival or Lemutier. Um Possibly um, glow in the dark. I don't know if you've got any of those. I can um, do glowing in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all all good um, forms of what was Aster Levy, now Symphia Trichum Levy, yeah. and they're, they're they're ones that people always want to give a Chelsea chop to. So when they get a foot high in the spring, you cut them back by half to make them more manageable in the garden. But if you don't give them the Chelsea chop, they will get up to sort of head height. Yeah. So they, they might work quite well. I should be knocking yeah. on your door, Tim. <laughs> we need to get more propagated because I have to say that the asters have gone really well this year. People yeah. have obviously decided that it's a year for buying asters. You know, a lot of these asters flowered six or eight weeks ago or started then. And mm. we've still got ones. And this one has only just come into flower in the last week or 10 days. Yeah. Uh, and the, the other two I've just shown are, are kind of fresh in flower as well. So you can still have them in flower. If you grew three or four different asters together, you'd cover July to December. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they're, they're really good value garden plants on the whole. And it is possible to avoid mildew pretty much completely. Um, I certainly don't grow any forms that get mildew badly. And if I do by chance get a variety that gets mildew, if it doesn't buck up its ideas in the second year, perhaps with a bit more water to it, then it goes on the compost heap and we try something different. Yeah. Uh, there's too many good ones to grow the bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> something completely different as the, the saying goes. This is an ornamental form of licorice. So this is Glycoriza urolensis. It's got these seed pods on it now. It has small heads of sort of bluey purple flowers in the summer, but you really grow it for these seed pods and this wonderful rufousy cinnamon colored stems that they have. It is a herbaceous plant, but it will behave almost more like a shrub in the garden. It just stands up really well. 
this one seven to eight feet hey um it's a good tall it's arching but it's um not a flopper in in my experience you know it, it goes up it arches over nicely and it stays there um that would that would provide a, a heck of a long season of interest in my vase shaped support wouldn't it yeah and they, these they're looking good from with the foliage i, I can see the the leaves so they've got these these lovely pinnate um well, they got about 10, 11 pairs of leaflets or something. Um, leaves coming up in the spring. Mm. It's not early up, sort of mid to late spring it comes up. Tightly clump forming, so you've not got to worry about it wandering off across the garden. I've never had it self-sow either. But mm. these seed pods last all winter on it, and they're still looking good in February, March, when you come to cut the whole plant down. Um, they're like little hedgehogs. Yes, yeah, they're quite spiky when you're trying to extract the seed from them as well. Actually, it's <laughs> it's it's one of those, and we collect a lot of seed on the nursery for our own use. And this is one of those ones where you you hold it reasonably carefully and you use a knife to flick the seeds out of them because you just finish up sticking all these these spiky hairy bits into your skin otherwise. But in the garden, it's really lovely. Um, yeah, good long season from it. Um, it's just really difficult to get it in. It's so big. <laughs> well, is, I'm very this... impressed by all the enormous plants you've managed to get into your study. I cannot imagine what it looks like behind your chair where you keep throwing everything. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have a compost heap there by the time I'm done. <laughs> and I'll bring this whole vase down here. It'd be easier Ooh. that way than taking them out and dripping water across my desk. <laughs> I know you have this one in the garden in several places. This is Persicaria Indian Summer. I think I bought it when it had just been discovered in the Mishmi Hills, I think. Yeah, yeah, this is one of the plants that's collected by Lake Michael Wickenden in Mishmi yeah. Hills. Um, it just got called Indian Summer as a, a sort of working name, and a bit of work by some collectors over the last year or two have finally pinned a real name down to it. Um, so it's Persicaria chinensis, subspecies ovalifolium. And the Indian summer is now kind of superfluous, if you like, but um, it's a lovely plant anyway, and long flowering season. Um, and it's got the, the foliage as well as the flower. Yeah. But what we've also now got is this one, Ooh. which is a little bit different. It's got a more red flower and much more of a purpley red flush to the leaf than you normally get on Indian summer. Indian summer does it a bit, but this one does it a lot more. It's another wild collected one from the same area, but this has a hairy leaf and it's Persicaria chinensis subspecies hispida. Uh, again, lovely thing. They seem to be pretty hardy here in Norfolk. Um, I'm sure yours have been out in the garden up at East Justin for, for a few years. Yes, I have, yeah. I haven't tried them in the ground here yet. Um, but they seem to keep growing through the winter in a cold polyton and in pots. So I'm sure they'll be fine in the ground with a mulch mm. at least. Um, so, yeah, if, if you like Indian summer, it's worth looking for Hispida, um, which has got the, the reference number of MCW29, just to pin it down until we have another name for it. Um, well, we, we're always going for nerdiness on this podcast. I know we've never before reached the nerdiness of it actually having its code. So thank you for that, uh, Tim. Yeah, well, I will admit being a sucker for plants that have just got a collector's number to them. You know, <laughs> it doesn't need a proper name, just 
a collector's number's fine for me. <laughs> when I first grew that uh, plant as Mishmi Hills there, um, I wasn't sure of its hardiness even. And I think I seem to remember myself taking cuttings in the autumn and they yeah. rooted really well. Um, yeah. And that's how I've got, that's why I've got so much of it. <laughs> yes. Well, we, we've just done cuttings of both these in the last week, actually. Yeah. So we, we take them at this time of year, they overwinter in the heated propagator and we pop them up in the spring. Yeah. Works very well. Um, also in this vase is the just about the last of the begonia grandis types that we've got in flower this year most of them have, have kind of come to the end now but this is one of my favorites it's actually the first one that i got many years ago this is begonia grandis sapporo um, and actually by chance it's another michael wickenden introduction this time from sapporo in japan and um, you got these slightly outlandish pale pink flowers on it with that pom-pom of yellow stamens in the center and what really makes Sapporo stand out from the other Begonia grandis types is this wonderful wine red underside to the leaf. It's the whole leaf is, is this purpley, purpley red. Um, got a slightly sort of dusky green top to it, where some of the, the other forms have a bright green upper surface. But that's been in flower since about the third week of August this year. And it's still going at the minute. First frost will turn them to a pile of brown mush and then they'll overwinter as a tuber and come up again in the spring. Um, everybody seems to be sort of concerned that these begonias aren't really hardy, but I would say in the UK, at least, all forms of begonia grandis are hardy. Um, if you're worried, give them a mulch. If you're growing them in pots, then I would take them inside somewhere for the winter, but in the ground, they're remarkably tough plants. Um, they do well in shade or, or some sun, um, you've got several different forms about now, um, white and pink flowered ones, and some forms with silver spots on the leaves as well now. Um, Interesting, you talk about the hardiness, Tim. There's a lady I know who lives um, near Wyndham, and she has an enormous pond in her back garden, and she sort of built a jetty over the pond, and she has this begonia growing along a ditch, and that ditch spends several weeks underwater during the winter, and yet the begonia still pops up again. I, I don't know the limits to them, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and one, one lady who works a couple of days a week for me took some of the little bulbils that they make in, mm. in the leaf joints at this time of year. And um, on my suggestion is I just had this hunch they'd work well. She scattered them in the narrow gap between the concrete path and the house wall. So it's, it's sort of six inches of gravel against the north wall of the house. And mm. I, I went and saw them in September this year. And it's just this brilliant display of it along there now because it's it spread along that um, gap. But what else could you grow in a six inch gap <laughs> of gravel between a concrete path and the house wall? Yeah, marvellous. What a solution. Well, I've, I've got a gap like that, but sadly it's next to a path and I'm not supposed to crowd the path. <laughs> oh, well, you know, there are a couple of new forms of Begonia grandis that have just come into cultivation in the last few years. One called Snow Pop and one called Bells and Whistles. No, sorry, the name nothing to do with me. Um, <laughs> and they are both more compact than Sapporo. Um, snow Pop's only about a foot to 15 inches high. So maybe that'll fit in. Yeah. <laughs> Last one in this vase. This is a ginger. Uh, again, a hardy ginger. 
Um, now I, I've seen have got this thing about me now that plants that people think won't be hardy but actually are and I'm growing more and more of them rather than the things that aren't quite hardy that just disappear on you. Uh, <laughs> but this is one of the, um, the Japanese gingers, it's Zinjiba myoga and this variegated form called dancing crane. It's not like the hedicums and court layers that produce these lovely spikes of flowers on the top of the stems. The, the zingibas have a tiny little barely visible flower spike at ground level. Um, there's the various theories about them being pollinated by beetles or slugs or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure what pollinates them, but um, I think dancing cranes well worth growing just as a foliage plant. Um, again, in the ground, perfectly hardy. Um, they do make up quite well, shall we say? Um, so not not for a small spot. Give it give it a bit of room. Being variegated, it is slower growing than the green leafed versions. Um, but this was new to me, I suppose, about four or five years ago, and it it's fast become a favourite in the, the sort of shade loving plant department of the nursery. Um, looks great from late May or so when it comes up, all the way through till the first frost, when a bit like the begonia it will just turn to a pile of brown mush and disappear for the winter um, give it a, a mulch of wood chip or, or bark or something like that and it will be absolutely fine i think they're they're probably hardy to like minus 15 minus 20 or something like that that foliage is so bright and beautiful probably the hardiest ginger you can grow in the garden um, so Brilliant. well worth a try the zingiba myoga there's, I've just bought earlier this autumn a couple of new variegated ones, one with a yellow variegation and one with a, a different white variegation. So there may be some more in the future. Um, see how those two grow. <laughs> Have we exhausted your show and tell yet? Oh, God, there's loads more if you want them. But... <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> what more have you brought? The problem I had was what do I bring? So... I also love that it's this time of year and you've got so many interesting things to show us. Yeah, there's, and we're helped by the weather this year, to be honest. Um, you know, it's been pretty mild so far. Um, so, yeah, in a normal, what's normal? Um, in a, a sort of typical year where you get frosts in October, then we wouldn't have so much. But I really do think it's fairly easy to have a garden that looks good 12 months of the year. And I really don't subscribe to the putting the garden to bed for the winter theory, I'm afraid. Neither do I. Um, so another weird one for the, the sort of plant collectors. And um, this is something I've also not had very long. And this is a plant that people might be more familiar with as a house plant family rather than a garden plant family. Pilea matsudai. And this one's got the cultivar name Taiwan silver because it has these silver speckles on the leaves. But I brought it really because it's in flower at the moment and it's has got these white nettle like clusters of flowers from the the leaf axles it just looks very nettle like at this time of year but with these silver splashed leaves and these they're definitely a creamy white flower rather than the sort of browny green of a nettle doesn't sting it's clump forming um, as Taiwan silver suggests it was collected in Taiwan and as far as I can tell it's perfectly hardy um, certainly hardy in the ground with a mulch. Um, I suspect it will take anything that the British climate can throw at it. 
Um, I may be wrong, but I've got a feeling this was collected by Sir Glethen Wynne Jones from Krieg. It's certainly um, an interesting new plant that I've got, and I think with all the houseplant interest, people are trying to pick some of these new hardier pileas in the ground. And this one, it does prefer shade in this part of the world. I think our summer sun is perhaps a bit too hot for it, but um, sort of shade, shade loving plant. Um, yeah, it's done really well for me. I only got it, it's actually it's October last year. Um, I, I took advantage of still being able to import plants from the, the continent reasonably trouble free and at low cost. So um, I splashed out on quite a lot of new plants and this was one of them. And it's probably made up about six times as much as it was when I bought it last year. <laughs> and I, I have already propagated it. We, ha we have a, a number of small rooted cuttings going already. Ah, oh, money well spent. Good investment. Well, yeah, when, once you buy a plant, you've got to do something with it. <laughs> <laughs> I am a bit of a sucker for variegated plants. So it's not just grasses and asters and that. I've got all sorts of variegated things. And this is um, another Cali Gardens plant, actually, from, from Michael Wickenden's time. Um, this is Alstroemeria brasiliensis Cali star. This lovely creamy yellow variegated form of, of Alstroemeria brasiliensis. Now, and Brasiliensis not that commonly grown, um, but it is very similar to Alstroemeria citacina, Ooh. which quite a lot of people grow. And there's a variegated form of Alstroemeria citacina as well called Royal Star. Um, but that's just got this fine silvery white edge to the leaf. And I'd say Cali Star is more showy because it's got this broader stripe. And what colour are the flowers? Again, the flowers very like Citacena, but whereas Citacena is red, green, black and white, Brasiliensis lacks the white. So it's red, yeah, green, green, black. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's quite a subtle flower, I would have to say, but it's this lovely, rich, ruby red. Um, obviously, it's finished flowering now, but you've still got this lovely foliage. And, um, it's a fairly flexible plant. I'm sure in the ground with planted deeply with a mulch, it will be absolutely fine over winter. Um, but if you grow it in a pot and keep it in a frost-free greenhouse or porch or something like that, it will be completely evergreen. And you've got this lovely variegated foliage all winter as well. Um, we, we keep our stock plant of this in a frost-free polytunnel. And um, yeah, they, they kept all of their foliage throughout the winter. Um, and it's it's almost carries on growing throughout the winter as well. Tim, at the risk of giving your secrets away, how do you propagate Alstroemerias? With confidence. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're one of those plants, if you haven't got the guts just to tear them apart. Well, I was just going to say, that's what we did with Indian Summer. We dug yeah. up a big clump of it and we ripped it to pieces and stuck it straight in the ground again, and it didn't look back. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I'm, they are very brittle plants. So as soon as you start propagating them, there will be bits falling off and snapping left, right and centre. Um, the key, I think, is to do them reasonably early in the summer so that they have a good long growing period to get established again before the winter. And with all Alstroemerias, if you plant them in the ground, they do need a really deep mulch of bark mm. or chip or something like that to get through the first winter. Um, I know Viv Marsh, the, the sort of Alstroemeria expert in, in the UK, 
always recommends i think it's eight or nine inches of bark chip over them when they're freshly planted yeah uh, and once they've got in the ground a couple of years they'll work their tubers down a lot deeper and they'll survive the winter without that that depth of mulch on them um but they do make if you've got a, a glass house that you can keep sort of well maybe not quite frost free but at least reasonably protected and sheltered then they make lovely container plants as well um so but yes you just have to bite the bullet in sort of may or early june and and tear them apart um i take them down to single pieces and pot them individually and they they do quite well mm. so, i'm really yeah. glad we've had this conversation because i'm going to need to go and mulch my uh alstroemeria <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. which i bought at alan's plant fair <laughs> and i've never had one before so uh thank you thank you for the advice <laughs> that was another trial i saw down at, at wisley's um the alstrom area trial about 2010 2012 something like that and they only got about a two inch deep mulch on them and a lot of them died in the winter um so it really did sort out the hardier ones from the, the not so hardy ones um, one last flower perhaps this is an old garden favourite that I think is well deserving a comeback and they are coming back in flower at the moment. And thankfully we've got a nice name for them now. This is Hesperantha, Hesperantha Cochinea Major, this one. And it's been flowering sporadically for a couple of months, I suppose, but it is producing hundreds of flower spikes at the moment and they will come through the frost. They will carry on flowering into December. Um, this is kind of the biggest, boldest, reddest Hesperantha out there. Um, but there are a whole host of white and pink ones as well. Um, I think for the last 20 years or so, people haven't really been growing them. But in the last couple of years, I've seen a lot more interest in them and I've started collecting them again. And I grew up in a garden that had about eight different ones. And I've, I've got back to, I think, four now. Um, but major here, it's this stunning red. It's it's not got a hint of orange or pink or purple or anything to it. It's just a clear red. And the sight of this with that low afternoon sun at the moment, but shining straight through the petals. Uh, it's a decent sized flower. The, the flowers, I suppose, are a couple of inches across when it's fully open. So, yeah, well worth going. It's a decent height as well. I can't get the height in the picture at once, but you know, it's, it's a good sort of two and a half feet or so. That looks like an exceptionally good strain that you've got there, Tim, because the, I've never seen Cochinea Major with flowers quite that big, I don't think. Yeah, um, I will say I was fairly picky where I bought it from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's definitely some plants out there with virus in, which makes it shorter and smaller flowered. And I suspect that there might be an imposter cultivar because there, there are one or two other red flowered ones as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a short red flowered one that sometimes gets sold as major when it isn't. It should be uh, minor. <laughs> yeah. um, the other thing but, about it is, you can grow them in. Uh, so you can sink the pots in ponds. They will, yeah, they will grow in water. And 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 the other thing, of course, if you if you've got a nice pot, and you've got a plant like this, if you bring it into a relatively cool sunroom or greenhouse or conservatory or something it will keep on flowering for you right the way through until december january yeah and i actually remember my mum picking 
flowers of various different ones from the garden at Christmas and sticking yeah. them around the house as Christmas flowers. Yeah. And that with no protection at all. So, yeah, I think if you really want a flower that will see the year out, um, Hesperantha cochinea major is probably a good one to give a, a, a try to. Mm. Pretty easy to grow as well. They don't need any particularly special conditions, though I would say sun for the best flowering from them. Um, but they seem to grow in most soils quite happily. Uh, but as you say, they do like like a damper soil. They grow even better there. Mm. Uh, I think but, it's yeah. safe to say, Tim, that you've outdone every single other guest with your show and tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I just, I'll just I'll say one thing that I've I sit here with a notebook writing names down furiously, and this is the only time I've ever gone onto a second page. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on till Christmas, probably. So, well, first of all, we know you'll be coming back. Um, <laughs> that, that's we'll book you in, you know, right away. Um, but it's this has just been fabulous, such a wonderful wide range of seasonal treasures for us to all want. I mean, everyone's Flomo list is now going to be extraordinarily long. And if you've never caught one of our podcasts before, the whole idea of Flomo, I'm sure you have the feeling of seeing a plant and wanting it desperately and having a bit of fear of missing out about it. If you've never had it before, you've definitely had it during this podcast. Um, it's interesting you finished with Hesperantha there because one of the plants that I really coveted from your Instagram page, Tim, was Hesperantha hetonii. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is a bit different, you know, different colour, but it looked lovely. Yeah, it's it's a stunning, it's a much smaller flower and, and it's earlier flowering as well. It's definitely a summer flowering species, hetonii. Um, the, the thing that causes most and concern I suppose with that one is it is a true bulbous or cormus species whereas um, cochineer is more of a sort of herbaceous perennial and um, the flower sized bulbs of Hesperantha huttonii are between five and ten millimeters in diameter so when you're splitting up a pot of those trying to find them and separate the bulbs out from the compost is quite a task. <laughs> I um, think that's also an inveterate little self-seeder isn't it? It can do, yeah. I mean, I've found it self-seeds quite a bit some years and not others. So right. I suspect seeds perhaps don't survive very wet winters or colder I winters. I can't remember who I bought it from, but I've also got a tall form of that. Okay. Um, my form, I suppose, is reasonably tall, about um, 60 to 80 centimetres, I guess. Uh, that's my tall form. My short form is about 30 centimetres. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I've got a few species of of Hesperantha now, but Cochineer is definitely the easiest one to grow. Huttonii mm. is fairly easy. Um, if you hunt back in my Instagram from a year or two ago, you'll find a lovely little white one called Falcator. And that proved irresistible to the mice, I'm afraid. And I've lost that one, but oh, um, dear. very much like to get it back again because it's got this brilliant scent in the evening to the flower. Oh. Um, if anybody if anybody's listening you know where to, you need to put your bulbs don't you <laughs> um there are so many things on your page i wanted i really header a helix pink and curly um i really want to get that and i know that's one you have and um, that's yeah. fab and fun i think we've mentioned that on the podcast before but the plant that has to be top of my wish list from you is is almost my namesake you have a gladiolus called thunder <laughs> Yeah, that was a new one I got last year. So it's just flowered for the first time this year. It's probably, um, you've mentioned Gladiolus ruby on the podcast, I think, before. 
there's a whole host of seedlings being named from Ruby now. And Thunder was the one that I went for when I was I was shopping online for plants myself last autumn. And yeah, that that was one that I thought, well, we've got to give it a try. Um, well, it's, I, I hope I really it's good. Alan it calls me Thunder. So that is um, <laughs> as a sh abbreviation of Thunder Fairy, which is my yeah. uh, my Instagram name, etc. But uh, if it's not a good plant, I don't want to know. <laughs> No, it's, it's a good one. When it first opened, we thought it's going to be really close to Ruby and probably not different enough to, to grow. But once we'd got three or four flowers fully open, yeah, it's definitely different. Um, a really good, strong colour. We like a good, strong colour. So that's that's my Flomo. Uh, but Tim, it's not ha orange. <laughs> <laughs> have you managed to whittle your Flomo down at all? Um, well, there is a reason I've got a nursery, and that's because I just can't stop buying plants and growing things from seed and cuttings and that. Um, so I've got hundreds and hundreds of things on my would like to get list, I suppose. But if we go for something I've seen most recently that went in fairly near the top of the list, and Alan will probably be guessing what I'm talking about, um, it's a plant that needs name and it needs propagating and somebody needs to start distributing it. Um, and it's a white flowered dahlia, which we saw up at East Ruston last week in the front <laughs> courtyard there. Um, it's this lovely glowing white flower to it with pink veins on the back. And as they go over, they go to this lovely pale blush pink. Um, some of them are actually going quite deep pink, I suppose, as they go over. But Yes, one, one of Alan's seedling dahlias, I think, is at the top of the wish list at the moment. <laughs> well, there you go, Alan. All of that talk about growing dahlias from seed has paid off. <laughs> it has, actually. Well, I mean, it, it, you need, I think, when you, when you do something like that and it's yours, you're, you're always sort of thinking, well, is it quite good enough? Um, I mean, I like it and it's in my garden. And, and um, both Tim and Sally, there, there was one that Sally liked as well with sort of, creamy lemon flowers, very spiky petals. Um, and I, I just sort of think, well, you get people, you know, genuine plants people who know what they're talking about. They tell you it's worth doing something with, you should do it. <laughs> so watch this space for next year. I'm gonna dig them up and I'm gonna propagate them from cutting so that I know I'm getting the right thing. Um, I'll still keep having a go with my seedlings though. Yeah. Tim, you'll be on the list first. <laughs> <laughs> And Alan, I don't know what you're going to do with your Flomo after this last hour, but what, what's on well, your list? I don't list? really know what I want to do with my Flomo because <laughs> we've just been through uh, this list. And I mean, I, I wouldn't have looked at panicums. I probably, Pensamons I like, not Penicetums, I mean. Um, Nalinias I wouldn't have looked at. I don't know why, but I just wouldn't. Um, yeah. Miscanthus I do, I do like. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm gonna plump with your tripsicum. It had to me presents. I don't mind that it doesn't last more than two or three years. This was the elemus. Oh, that, that's the elemus. What am I talking about then? Yes, it was the elemus canadensis. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we just yeah. go for both of them, Alan. You've got thirty-two acres. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's the elemus. Yeah. That's the elements that I, I do like that. I do love the sort of the softness of it, even if it's not soft to the touch, but it looks uh, just lovely. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's going to be my Flomo. Yeah. Elemus canadensis icy blue. Well, we all want that. I can't imagine there's a single person 
particularly watching, but even from the descriptions to the audio on the audio podcast, I can't imagine there's a single person who doesn't want that in their garden. It's absolutely beautiful. Oh, Tim, you've given us a lot of food for thought. Uh, hopefully there'll just be lots of orders flying in. Uh, you've got a full website and everything. Yeah, you need to spend a bit of time updating the website now, I think. But um, yeah, it's um, uh, most of these things, if we've got any left this year, will be on there. Um, there's always one or two things like the the pillow will hopefully be next year but um, yeah I, I try not to have a static list of things that we've always got that people know we'll always have year in year out there's always something new coming in and some of the old things might perhaps go two or three years without having any available but um, yeah always trying new things and pushing the boundaries a little bit in terms of hardiness and that but most important things, they've got to grow here without too much effort. Um, I'll give them the winter protection if they need it, but if they can't stick it outside in the summer, um, then it's like blue Himalayan poppies. They're, they look stunning, but really, if you want to grow them, move to somewhere cooler and damper. Norfolk's not the place for them. No. Well, it's it's been an absolute treat. You'll have to come back again. I like the fact that, and this is partly because the clocks have changed, but I've actually been plunged into darkness over the course of this podcast because we've been talking <laughs> for so long. <laughs> I've just got one light and every, the house has just gone dark around me. <laughs> oh, but it's been, a, it's been a joyful time. Um, Tim, thank you very much. Please come back again. But in the meantime, happy gardening. Happy gardening, everybody. <laughs> happy gardening. Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Mm-hmm.